Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to continue in our volume of the book, Portraits of Yeshua, study as we now are going to look at Lesson 8, The Mediator of the Covenant. Again in Genesis, we're going to continue to see pictures of Yeshua as we're now beginning to get into the times of the patriarch Abraham. We will see quite a few during the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants as we round out Genesis. Today, we're going to examine Jesus as the mediator of the covenant. Prior to this time, God had a special type of relationship with mankind. Whoever in the earlier line of Adam would call upon him through Seth, that godly line, such as Enoch, Noah, etc. But as we have seen, there were many, many wicked people also that were multiplying and expanding on the earth at the same time as God's godly line through Seth. Even in those, even in those people, in the godly line of Seth, it was always through faith in the Lord and his word. But God was choosing a special new kind of relationship going above and beyond those with a special group of people that he called and chose. God was instituting a covenant relationship with people who would believe and honor him by faith and have a personal relationship with him at this new level. God did establish a covenant with Adam in the sense of a covenant with mankind in general. He established a covenant with Noah in the sense of his promise and pledge never to flood the earth again. But here, God is going to cut covenant with one man who would become the father of a special group of people. Those people God would choose out of all the peoples on the earth to be his and to be a light unto all the other nations. Now, let's understand here. We're not saying that Abraham was the only godly person that God was ever going to use or speak to or that was alive at that time. But God was choosing him as a special person with a special mission for all of his descendants. If you'll remember, Job was also alive. He was a contemporary during the time of the patriarchs of Abraham and so forth. And Job was a very godly man. You can read that in chapter 1 of the book of Job. So it wasn't that Abraham was the only person who knew God at this time. But God was choosing Abraham because God had a special mission for him and for his descendants. So God singles out a special person from whom he would make the people to be his own. I want us to look at Genesis chapter 11, and I want to read verses 10 through 32 to start us off. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxed two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxed, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxed lived 35 years and begot Selah. And after he begot Selah, Arphaxed lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. 
after he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ro. After he begot Ro, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ro lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Ro lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishkah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Here we are seeing the genealogical record from Seth down through Abram. And the focus now is going to begin to center on Abram and what God is doing through this particular descendant of Shem from Noah. Now I want to read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 9. Now the Lord had said to Abram, which is why they were leaving her of the Chaldeans to begin with. Notice this, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Here Abram enters a covenant with the living God who speaks to him, the living God who leads him and who calls him. 
God makes himself known to Abram. Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees. He had many gods there to worship, but now he has encountered the one and only living God, and he was never the same again. Praise be to God. Abram had to have great faith, and we are taught that all through the scriptures, even into the New Testament. It exemplifies Abram's faith. He had great faith. Think about it. He left everything he knew to go on a journey that he did not know. He didn't even know the destination he was going to end up in. This speaks of great trust and faith in this living God who had appeared to him and spoken to him. Abram took God at his word. That is, in essence, the definition of faith. Hebrews 11 Verse 1 and verse 6 give us more information about faith being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that you cannot yet see. And then it talks about how without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God through faith must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who will diligently seek him. So faith in Abram's account stepped in and said, I don't know where I'm going, but I know the one who's told me to go, and I'm going to believe and trust him. I'm going to believe in what I cannot see right now. I believe that he lives, and I believe that he rewards those who will trust him. So I'm going to trust him, and he's going to lead me. The destination was promised by God. I want us to look next at Genesis chapter 13. In verse 14 through 18, where God begins then to solidify the destination for Abram. Abram and Lot had come together, journeyed together, and now they're, they're both growing. Their families are multiplying. Their servants and their households and everything that they own is growing. And they can't seem to dwell together well. And Abram says to him, he says, you choose if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You, you choose what piece you want, and I'll take the rest. And so Lot chooses what he wants. Then in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 through 18, it says this, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now, and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron and built an altar there to the Lord. So God now solidifies for him the destination that has been promised for him to inherit. God then cuts covenant with him. If you remember, in the previous message, we looked at Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we saw how Melchizedek, who is the type of Jesus, came offering covenant to Abram in chapter 14. Now we see where God is actually cutting that covenant with Abraham, with Abram, 
and making clear to him whose covenant it is and who is responsible for it. In Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he, meaning Abram, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it, he meaning God, accounted it to him, meaning Abram, for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, meaning God, said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergoshites, and the Jebusites. So God is cutting covenant with Abram here. In the ancient world, the cutting of a covenant was a very serious thing. It was an unbreakable bond. When they would cut the animals and lay them between them and they would walk through the pieces, they were saying, in essence, may God do so to me if I do not keep this covenant with you. So in other words, they were saying, may they find their death and destruction if they were to dare to break the covenant. Generally, the covenants were between two or more parties. However, notice this in God's covenant with Abraham. Only God walked through the pieces. Abraham, Abram, was asleep. God put Abram to sleep because God knew that Abram could not keep the eternal terms of this covenant. So God was making it clear this covenant was dependent 
upon God himself. It was unconditional. God loved Abram, and God was making this covenant with him, and it was purely God's grace. Every bit of it was going to be God himself bringing it to pass. It was all by grace. And it was all dependent on the grace, on the character, and on the trustworthiness of God, on his faithfulness and his faithfulness alone. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah writes these words in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When you look into those words, great is your faithfulness, it's talking about how it is multiplied by the myriad. In other words, you've got multiplication upon multiplication upon multiplication, exponential multiplication. Multiplied by the myriad is God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness. He can be trusted. And so this new covenant was relying solely on God entirely, on the fact that he was a God who loved us. He was a God who was faithful. He was a God of character and integrity, and he was the God who is the ultimate promise keeper. He's one that will never fail in any of the promises he has spoken. And so Abraham's covenant with God was a testament to God's grace. This is a picture of Yeshua, Jesus, in the Old Testament, because we want to look next at Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8. It also speaks about a mediator of a covenant. God was mediating a covenant with Abram, and he passed through those pieces, he alone, because it was a testament to his grace, his faithfulness to keep this Abrahamic covenant that he made on that day in Genesis 15. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. Remember in the last lesson we talked about Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says this, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, meaning God, said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses was shown the pattern of the heavenly temple, and that was the instructions and the blueprint that Moses had to follow in making the earthly tabernacle of Moses. Verse 6, continuing in the reading. But now he, meaning Jesus, our great high priest, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he, meaning 
Jesus, Yeshua, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Because he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So Jesus became the mediator of the better covenant, the new covenant, established on better promises. Now, in the context of this, in Hebrews writing, what's being contrasted here, what is being compared here, is the Old Testament law, the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, with Jesus and the new covenant. There were primarily three main covenants in scripture. There were others. There was Adamic covenant. There was the Noahic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant, and then there is the New Covenant. So the comparison in the context of this portion of Hebrews is between the Mosaic Covenant, or the Torah, the Law, with the New Covenant and the mediator of the New Covenant. God had made the Everlasting Covenant with Abraham, and then he gave the Mosaic Covenant, which was conditional. The Abrahamic covenant, as we talked about, was not conditional. It had nothing to do with Abraham and everything to do with God and God's grace and God's sovereignty. God chose Abraham to make from him a people that would be his people, a people that he could entrust his laws to, could entrust the patterns to, the shadows of the things to come. And so the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. The Mosaic covenant, the Torah, the law, was conditional. If you do this, then you can enjoy the land. If you do this, you can enjoy such and such. If you don't do this, then you're going to incur consequences or judgment or whatever. But the new covenant is the unconditional covenant of grace through Jesus, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So the new covenant really is the extension and the ultimate fulfillment of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. In other words, it's renewing that covenant of grace that was originally given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 through 15 and now is fulfilled in its entirety through Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. He is the mediator of the better covenant when compared to the Mosaic covenant. It's better because it is unconditional and based upon God's grace and God's faithfulness. So what is this new covenant? Hebrews goes on to tell us about it in Hebrews 8 verse 7 through 13 where he quotes Jeremiah's writings. Let's read Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, meaning the Mosaic covenant in the context, you understand that. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So he's not saying it was the very first of all covenants. He's saying that the first of these two that we are comparing in the context of this passage is the Mosaic covenant versus the new covenant that Jesus is mediating and bringing. So he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah prophesied of this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Here again is more proof that he's contrasting the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant in this passage. Continuing, but because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord, because it was conditional. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he gives us more details about this covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 as the new covenant. He tells us that his law, his word, instead of it being placed on tablets of stone externally, now it is placed inside our heart. It's written inside of our hearts in the tablets of flesh, the tender tablets that are devoted and yielded to the Lord. It says here that he will be our God and we his people. This speaks of a covenant relationship like a marriage or like a family. It's that kind of close-knit relationship of family. He says that individuals, individuals will know God themselves because he is personal and intimate in relationship with them. It's from a relationship, having a relationship with God within each of us, ourselves. We don't have to have a priest or pastor knowing God for you. You know God yourself when you are walking with him, when you are growing in him, when you have faith in him and have entered this new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. So mercy and grace is extended from God through this new covenant to forgive sins and wash them away. In the Old Testament, under the Mosaic covenant, sins would be temporarily covered or excused, you might say, for a season, they were covered by the atoning sacrifices that the Old Testament demanded. But they were never washed away. They were never completely removed. And yet when we come to the New Testament, John identifies for us the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. They're not just covered. They are removed. They are erased. They are remembered no more which is exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied. So the new covenant is far superior, and it required a mediator. And this mediation required the death of the testator. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to read verses 11 through 28 as we begin to draw to a close. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. 
not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Let me just interject this here. When we see the word redemption, if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, it will tell you that redemption is speaking of the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of our sins, redeeming us back to God, bringing us back into right relationship with God because the sins that stood in the way are no longer there. They have been washed away and completely removed. Now we see here in this passage that Jesus has obtained eternal redemption for those who believe in him. Continuing in the reading, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean satisfies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses has spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So here we're learning more about Jesus being the mediator of this better covenant. And the author here is telling us that this covenant, this better covenant, required the death of the testator. The mediator had to die to mediate this covenant. It's like a will in our day to day. If you have a will, until someone dies, that will means nothing to you if you're the heir of that. It's meaningless until that person dies. Now, that doesn't mean we kill the person. Of course not. Of course not. We're just saying that we have that will where it specifies what our wishes are to the heirs that we are naming 
after we are dead because everybody is going to die. We just read it. It's appointed to men once to die. So the will gives the benefit to the heirs. It establishes for them their inheritance. It's the same with this covenant. The new covenant gives us the inheritance that God has promised us, and it tells us about the covenant promises we have. The mediator is required. And notice this, the mediator of this new covenant was foretold to us already in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Talking about John the Baptist there. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. In other words, he's saying here, the Lord who's coming to his temple is the messenger or the mediator of the covenant. He's the one in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is telling us about John the Baptist being the one who will come before the Lord to prepare his way. And then the Messiah, Jesus, the messenger or mediator of the covenant who also will come. The messenger or mediator of the covenant, the Hebrew word is speaking of him being a dispatch or a deputy, an ambassador, a messenger, one who brings the message of the covenant. It's interesting that many times in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, it's also translated as angel. It's referring to the Lord's spokesman. In the New Testament, we pick it up with the Greek word, mesites, and it's a go-between, a reconciler, an interannunciator. God, through Christ, came reconciling the world. We're told that by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. So this mediator of the New Testament was the go-between. The go-between between God and man, the one who came to be that interannunciator, that reconciler between God and man. There was a major problem between God and man. Sin is its name. There was sin that had broken the relationship, the purity and fullness of the relationship between God and man. It was broken in Genesis chapter 3. But God, God was going to have a go-between. God was going to have a people who would be reconciled to him. And he gave us the pattern with Abram in Genesis chapter 12 through 15 and so on. And in the book of Genesis and following in his descendants through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there was also needing to be a mediator, a go-between, so that that relationship could be established in covenant with God and man. We read about who that person is in First Timothy chapter 2. We don't have to wonder who it is. Paul, writing to Timothy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, tells us exactly who it is. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, the anthropos, the human being, 
God come in the flesh, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus is that one and only mediator. Jesus Christ is his name. The author of Hebrews confirms this as we're closing up here. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 25, it says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Jesus is clearly named here as well. The mediator of the new covenant, the one who would renew the Abrahamic covenant in totality. The blood of Jesus would be the blood that would fulfill that by God's grace, offering salvation and reconciliation between God and man the inheritance of the new covenant that was promised as an act of God's grace when a person will believe in Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Just like Abram believed God and it was accounted or imputed or credited to him as righteousness, so it is with all who will believe in Jesus Christ and him alone. He alone offers the new covenant the better covenant established on better promises. He alone is the mediator of the new covenant for all who will believe and receive him. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again as we continue in our volume of the book, Portraits of Yeshua series. May God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.